Welcome to the Engines of Texanity. Episode 1, Don't Mess with Texas Horsemen. I'm Brandon Seal. The origin story of the Lipan Apaches goes something like this. Down in the lower world, at the beginning, there was no light, only darkness. Down there were the people, us, the Apaches, or the Diné, as we call ourselves. From the Guadalupe Mountains, we emerged and began walking, clockwise to the four directions. To the north went the Navajo, to the west, the Chiricahua, to the south, the Mescaleros, and to the east, the last to drop off, were the Lipanes. The first Lipan was a great one. Killer of enemies, he was called. Nothing was impossible to him. But even he prayed for a little help. And this was to show us that no matter how strong we are, we must still ask for a little help. In response, he was told to make a horse. He made the eye from the evening star so that the horse could see in both day and night. He made the ear from the crescent moon. He made the teeth from hail. He made the mane and tail from rain. In the horse's nostrils, killer of enemies placed the lightning. Then he called the four winds from the four directions, and they entered the horse at four different points, where today you see whorls on his hide, one at the flank, one under the shoulder, and one at the hip on each side. When Killer of Enemies had done all this, the horse stood there, complete and grand, and Killer of Enemies' face got well, which is how we Lipanes say that he was pleased. But then the horse bolted, galloping out onto the plain. Mouth of my enemy, Killer of Enemies cursed in our Lipan way. When Killer of Enemies looked again, however, this time he saw four horses. The first was charcoal black, the second was blue roan, the third was yellow sorrel, and the last was a white gray. Killer of Enemies approached the horses. He circled the four horses four times, clockwise, from the east, and came to stand before them. One of the horses looked at him and said, Grandchild, if you know something about horses, you can have us. The horses shook their bodies, and Killer of Enemies watched. From each horse fell clay, the color of their bodies, and eagle feathers. Killer of Enemies went up to each of the horses and shook himself in turn. Clay and feathers fell from him just the same, and the horses saw this. So then, with a black rope, Killer of Enemies haltered the black stallion. With a blue rope, the blue one. With a yellow rope, the yellow one. And with a white rope, the white one. And then the horse said, Grandchild, you know our ways. We belong to you now. Which way are you stepping? Asking in the Lipan way where it was that Killer of Enemies wished to go. That's more or less how the Lipanas tell it anyway. The horses might have told it a bit differently. The horses would have told the Lipanes that they had been in North America long before the Lipanes had got there. 50 million years before, if you're willing to go all the way back to the horses' earliest evolutionary ancestors. But around eight to 11,000 years ago, at the end of the last ice age, the Great Plains became great swamps. Terrain that didn't favor the heavy creatures whose single toes sank into the soggy grasslands like a stiletto heel. Grasslands whose grasses soon drowned in the oversaturated soils and so the horse disappeared from North America. The horses had to wait for the peoples of the Iberian Peninsula to bring them back to the American plains. 
The Iberian Peninsula is perhaps the site of horse and man's most extended history together. Of horse-man-ship, that is. There are still wild horses in Spain today, or semi-wild ones anyway. Short-legged, mustachioed creatures known as garranos that are managed by locals in much the same way that we might imagine horses have always been managed by early horsebreakers. We should say, they don't actually break the horses at all. No, locals today simply cull out the garrano stallions whose genes they don't wish to propagate, like a deer hunter culling inferior bucks from the herd. A few decades of culling out the wilder and more dangerous stallions, a few seasons even, and you've got the beginnings of purposeful horse breeding. Over the centuries, garranos were mixed with other native breeds, such as the Soraya and the Galician Pony, as well as ancestors of the Andalusian and Lusitano breeds, all of which were later fortified by African Berber horses and the unmistakable Arabian strains brought by the Muslim Arab invasions of the 8th century. In English, this kind of general Iberian mixture came to be known as the Spanish Barb, and this was the bloodline that conquered Tenochtitlan in the Valley of Mexico in 1521. The conquest of Tenochtitlan had demonstrated plainly the power of the horse in the Americas as both a physical and a psychological weapon. And as they moved up through the central Mexican highlands, the Spanish strictly regulated who could ride and even own horses. Of course, it was inevitable that some horses would eventually escape back onto the plains that had nourished their ancestors. By 1659, Spanish governors of New Mexico were already complaining about horse raids by a tribe that seemed to have taken particularly well to the horse, the Apaches. In 1680, when the natives of New Mexico drove the Spanish out of the province for a decade, more on that next episode, the entire Spanish New Mexican horse herd was turned loose onto the Great Plains, more than a thousand animals according to some sources. And no one ended up with more of those horses more quickly than the Apaches. When they had first trudged into the Texas panhandle around 1500 or so, the Apaches were foragers. As they migrated south through the Texas plains toward the Trans-Pecos and the Rio Grande, they came into contact with the Humanos, a buffalo hunting and trading people whose network reached as far as East Texas and down into Central Mexico, but whose lifeway was supported by settled corn-raising communities like those stumbled on by Cabeza de Vaca at the site of modern-day Ojinaga Presidio. Prior to the arrival of the horse, the cultivation of corn was the biggest thing to hit native Texas. Planting, harvesting, and storing corn could easily yield 30 times the energy invested, compared to foraging, which most of the time was a pretty calorically break-even proposition, which is to say you spent almost as many calories looking for food as it yielded to you in calories. For some further comparison, and again recalling the story of Cabeza de Vaca, it takes 11 pounds of prickly pears to yield the same amount of calories as just one corn tortilla. And tortillas don't leave little spines in your fingers either. Almost everywhere it appeared, the domestication of corn had the effect of concentrating populations, enhancing their ability to specialize, engage in trade, and protect themselves from wandering nomads like the Apaches. The first Apaches imitated the Humanos as best they could, trying their hand at seasonal corn plots and eventually competing with them for buffalo. And the early Apaches also tried to break into the Humanos East Texas trade networks, but in doing so only earned the enmity of their trading partners, the other great Texas agriculturalists of the epoch, the Hassanai in East Texas. The horse, the Apaches soon realized, however, could be their great disruptor. The horse was a sort of land eagle, Remember the clay and feathers from the Lipan Apache origin story. 
It conferred vantage and speed on a rider, and the horse was a machine that concentrated the dispersed energy of the prairie grasses into usable energy. Grasslands are nutritionally useless to humans, but horses have a four-foot-long addition to their intestinal tract known as a cecum, essentially a fermentation vat where a combination of bacteria and protozoa and fungi break down the cellulosic walls of grasses and turn them into energy. In arid regions, like West Texas, you'd need something like 2,500 acres, four square miles, to support a single human forager, and none of their nutrition would come from the grass. But that same grassland could support 25 horses. And it gets even better. The ligaments and tendons in a horse's leg can lock in a neutral position while standing, which is why they can sleep upright. But it also means that a horse can spend almost zero energy while grazing. And, unsurprisingly, for an animal whose ancestors had evolved on the great North American plains, a horse can go at least six times as far as a man can on something like one-sixth of the calories. And a single man, Apache soon found, could comfortably command a string of six horses, which meant that each Apache in 1680 could now be the master of the equivalent of like 36 men or some other crazy compounding multiple. The first Apache horseman started out by imitating some of the horse-raising techniques they'd seen the Spanish use, but soon they introduced their own North American tweaks. Saddles they made from, quote, tree forks, whittled down to form the front and cantle, and on the front, a projection is left for the horn. Two flat boards are lashed between these forks, one on either side, to form the saddle skirts. Wet rawhide, often with fur on, is stretched over this frame and laced in place, and as it dries, it contracts and fits securely, end quote. Saddle blankets they made from deer hide, with the fur side down. Cinches and bridles were from woven horsehair, leather, and cactus fibers, with ironwood rings to ratchet them down tight. Rawhide moccasins dried into hardy but nimble horseshoes for rocky terrain, although Apaches often left their horses unshod. Apaches did use stirrups, but not in the northern European style with the rider standing and leaned back. Predictably enough, the Apaches imitated more the Spanish style, which had in turn been descended from Arab and Berber techniques, riding a la jineta, with the rider balancing on their pelvis over the horse's center of gravity, maintaining contact with the horse's back with their seat. In fact, the Spanish word for a saddle is a, is a chair, a silla, a legacy of this style of seated riding. All the photos I've seen of Apache stirrups show simple, loose-hanging, thin leather straps that required the Apache to make their seats do most of the work in directing the horse, almost bareback style. And the rest of their horse mastery they accomplished through good husbandry, selecting for qualities in horses that better suited the Texas Plains, preferring smaller horses with lower centers of gravity, nimble sprinters over larger draft horses. Which made sense. It was as weapons, not workhorses, that the horse conferred its most immediate advantage on the Apaches in Texas. In combat, a person on foot didn't have a chance against a man on a horse. But horsemen like the Apaches soon realized that they didn't even really need to fight the farmers. In fact, it was much more efficient to let the agriculturalists plant and raise and harvest and shuck the corn for them, and then just go take it and ride away. What were the poor sodbusters going to do about it? Pursue them out onto the plains? On foot? There's actually a couple of sad episodes in the early years of Stephen F. Austin's colony where early Anglo settlers, accustomed to doing their fighting on foot, tried to do just that. And it didn't go well. The historical record suggests that it didn't go any better for Humano farmers either when they tried to retaliate against mounted Apache warriors. And so suddenly, 
All the things that had seemed like assets to the settled quasi-agricultural tribes of Texas, their adobe buildings and their population concentrations, became liabilities. Just a few years after the 1680 revolt in Spanish New Mexico, the Apaches were everywhere, all at once. By 1685, when Frenchman René Robert Cavalier de la Salle landed in Matagorda Bay, he was able to trade for horses with East Texas Indians. Yet the presence of horses in East Texas, just five years after they'd been turned out in New Mexico, actually betrays as well the collapse of the Humanos people and the rise of the Apaches, who in most of Texas by that date could be safely categorized as Lipan Apaches. The horse quickly redrew the political boundaries of native Texas. It brought, in the words of scholar Pekka Hamalainen, quote, destabilization, dispossession, and destruction, end quote. For some. For others, it brought unprecedented power and wealth. It didn't just make horse peoples wealthy collectively. The horse made individual Lipanes wealthy, and it gave them a new ability to support themselves on their own as individuals much more freely than they ever could have managed as foragers or farmers. By the 1800s, contemporary estimates claim that the average Plains horse Indian owned 35 horses and mules. At a market price of around $20 per horse, that's something like $700 of very liquid wealth at a time when the estimated total capital of all 2,000 Tejanos in the state was maybe less than $10,000 equivalent. So we're coming up here on another one of those Brandon theories that I'm not sure how we could actually prove, but it doesn't seem to me a coincidence that the newly mounted peoples of the Texas Plains developed a political culture characterized by a radical individualism. A man with a horse in Texas in 1700 didn't need to rely on communal agriculture or communal defense anymore. He could support himself and his family and whoever else he wanted to associate with quite comfortably by raiding and hunting and trading. And if necessary, fleeing. If he didn't like a chief or a family member or a friend, he could just ride off and join up with some other horse folks. Or maybe spin off with a few of his buddies and start his own raiding enterprise. This feature of Texas Plains Indian culture, incidentally, would be the subject of much complaint by first Spanish, then Mexican, then Texian, then American observers, who often lamented that peace treaties made with Lipan and Comanche chiefs were meaningless because dissenting warriors would just break off and continue warring. Though I'll note here, too, that I've started to wonder if Plains Indians might not have leveled the same charge back at the confusing diversity of European societies that all insisted on making separate treaties with them, from Spanish New Mexicans to Spanish Texans to Anglo-Texians to German Texians to Anglo-Texas Rangers to Anglo-American Bluecoats, etc., etc. The Lipan Apaches came to believe that the horse had been made just for them, or perhaps even, as you heard in the origin myth, that the horse had chosen them. The horse, however, had no particular loyalties. And soon, some of the victims of Lipan expansion began to master the horse themselves. Starting around 1706, Spanish chroniclers document enormous battles between the Lipanes and an upstart mounted empire to their north, the Comanches. The Comanches, at this date anyway, had two distinct advantages over the Lipanes. One, they were still largely unaffected by European diseases, and two, they had gotten a hold of firearms from French traders well beyond the reach of the Lipanes trade networks. For the next century and a half, 
Texas was a multi-front battlefield whose lines were drawn around shifting alliances of Lipan, Comanche, Tejano, and later Anglo horsemen. In some way, it was these groups' shared reliance on horses that set them against each other in their fight for Texas's vast but not unlimited grazing land. Lipanes harassed newcomer Spaniards in the town that they came to call Mini Houses, San Antonio, until Comanches swept down onto their rear at the head of a coalition of northerners comprised of Tonkawas, Wichitas, and Tayovayas, to name a few. Tejanos at first tried to ally with these newcomer Comanches to fight their shared Lipan enemy, but after Comanche northerners burned Mission San Saba to the ground, Tejanos changed horses and teamed up with the Lipanes, who soon found themselves back in the ascendance and by about 1771 had pretty well busted up the Comanche's northerner coalition. Feeling their strength, the Lipanes then convened a 4,000-warrior-strong Pan-Indian Conference in 1782, intent on driving the Tejanos out of Texas. But all it ended up producing was an intensified drive by Tejanos to import more reliable allies into the state. Tejanos landed on Anglo-American immigrants as the best candidates, supporting their immigration as allies against the so-called Indios Barbaros, a generic term that they used for both the Lipanes and the Comanches, who actually started coordinating together in the 1800s as their numbers began to dwindle. It's worth mentioning, though, that occasionally, just occasionally, all four of these groups would come together against the common enemy, as they did in 1813 against the Spanish royalists during and after the Battle of Medina, one of the many reasons why that battle so fascinates me. But each of these four groups followed a similar trajectory that seems to map directly onto their integration of the horse into their societies, and it's a trajectory which I find defies contemporary trends in world political history, or at least European political history, toward concentration and centralization of power at this time. And this experience had to have been formative on Texans of all ethnic backgrounds. Maybe someone knows of a scholar, maybe someone knows of a scholar who's written directly on this, but it's clear to me that after the success of the Lipanes and Comanches in integrating the horse into their lives, settled, concentrated agrarianism was a losing strategy in Texas. Look at the Humanos in West Texas, who basically disappeared, and the Hassanai in East Texas, who by 1800 had abandoned agriculture and returned to nomadism themselves. Look at the larger experience of the Lipanes, who had started down a path of corn raising, but gradually moved away from it. And the Comanches just dispensed with agriculture altogether. Tejanos even followed a similar pattern. Travelers to San Antonio in the early 1800s puzzled at the Villa's picturesque but abandoned fields. Quote, I've never understood why, although there are well-watered lands about the houses and the missions, one sees no planting there, end quote. Another observer from the same period, however, answers the question, quote, the mission farmers live there in as great a state of misery as the natives whom the friars formerly shut up in them. At every moment, warring tribes kill some laborer, and they come almost constantly to steal the animals, end quote. Farming didn't just represent a low return on investment, Tejanos at this time discovered. It was dumb, and it was deadly. Tejanos instead turned to harvesting the wild cattle on the plains for their hide and tallows for sale in the markets of New Orleans, all of which, too, was an industry and a trade made possible only by the horse. When Tejanos declared their independence in 1813, they referred to the act as, quote, tomando en nuestras propias manos las riendas de nuestro gobierno, end quote, using a fittingly horse-based metaphor of taking into their own hands the reins of their government. 
But given how much we've seen Tejanos followed a similar economic trajectory to the Plains Indians before them, to what extent, perhaps, should we also attribute their ideals and desires for self-government to those same Indios Barbaros? This would be consistent, actually, with a scholarly push to find in the political ideologies of Native Americans the roots of American-style democracy and political liberty. Democracy and liberty, after all, were kind of bad words amongst Europeans of the 17th and 18th century. Indeed, the first accounts by Europeans of Native Americans are full of observations meant as critiques, but that frankly sound to our modern American ears more like compliments. Quote, the savage does not know what it is to obey, end quote. Quote, Indians think everyone ought to be left to his own opinion, end quote. Quote, every man is free in these places. No other person, white or Indian, sachem or sage, has any right to deprive anyone of his freedom, end quote. All of these are from a book on the subject called Indian Givers by Jack Weatherford. Others have noted the specific influence of anti-authoritarian, self-governing native societies like the Iroquois and the civilized tribes of the American South on folks like Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Paine, Voltaire, and Montaigne. It feels to me like a similar thing happened in Texas. Tejano's radical individualism bucks many of the old communal stereotypes of Catholic Spain. And Anglo-Texans who came also to embrace these kinds of ideals, they came predominantly from the American South, which was a decidedly non-individualistic and certainly a non-egalitarian society at that time. And yet both Tejanos and Anglo-Texans became radical individualists, each within about a generation of exposure to the mounted horse Indians of Texas. And doesn't today's widespread Texan admiration for the uncompromising Lipanes and Comanches betray some kind of ideological debt to them? We ought to be careful what we wish for, though, because Lipan and Comanche freedoms and political liberties make a mockery of our claims to live in the free world. If these horse Indians didn't like their boss, they just left. When you don't like your job, well, you show up anyway, because you got a mortgage and you got taxes to pay, and good luck getting out from under those. And yet this state of radical liberty in which these Lipanes and Comanches lived, in which Tejanos and Anglos aspired to, wouldn't have been possible without the horse. Maybe the phrase, don't mess with Texas, doesn't originate with a 1985 anti-littering campaign. No, it was written the first time a native Texan hopped on the back of a horse. Engines are machines that convert energy into motion. In the case of the horse in Texas, the horse converted the caloric energy of prairie grasses into useful motion that could be harnessed by human beings. But in a metaphorical sense as well, the domestication of the horse became an engine of human history, moving people forward in different directions than they would have gone otherwise. The domestication of the horse in Texas is one of the clearest and first recorded instances, too, of a material change altering not only the course of Texas history, but the psychology of Texans. Their Texanity, as I've called it, with all of the connotations of mental instability that that may produce for you. From an evolutionary perspective, the horse has probably outcompeted every animal in Texas other than perhaps the cow. But even beef cattle today in Texas aren't treated nearly so well as the million or more pampered horses that call this state home today. The bloodlines of those original Spanish barbs live on today in those horses, particularly in the world-renowned Texas quarter horse. Though mostly descended from English breeds bred for racing the quarter mile, hence their name, 
It was only when Texas Mustangs were bred back into these English breeds that the resulting offspring began to show the hardiness and intelligence that turned them into the legendary cow horses that helped to create the state's image to the world. In case you remain skeptical of my theory that native Texas horse peoples showed the world and future Texans that political decentralization could be a successful strategy in the modern or at least pre-modern world, you aren't alone. Chief among the skeptics at the time were Spanish royal authorities. Even if the Lipanes and Comanches had slowed the advance of the Spanish Empire up into the arid half of North America, they hadn't given Spaniards real reason to doubt the success of their societal model. And their model was built on agriculture. But not just on dryland agriculture. It was built around a style of agriculture that compounded the energetic returns realized by normal, seasonal, or dryland crop raising. There was one thing the Spanish believed and continued to believe more powerful than the horse water on the next episode of the engines of Texas history. Thank you for listening. A quick postscript. The Comanches tend to overshadow the Lipanes and Anglo Texas histories of, of the state because of Anglo's man crush on Quana Parker and other reasons. But the hard truth is that even after the arrival of the Comanches, the Lipan heartland remained largely the same, notwithstanding the fact that it was the Lipanes who had borne the brunt of Spanish, Mexican, and then Anglo-American expansion for almost three centuries. And indeed, it's worth remembering that the Lipanes, sustained by their special relationship with the horse, would outlast the Comanches by nearly 30 years. Indeed, they would outlast famed Chiricahua Apache Geronimo by 17 years, Though to date, no one has made any movies about the 19 Lipanes that finally turned themselves into the reservation in 1903. To say nothing of the Lipanes that rode into the Coahuiltecan Canyonlands and never came down to be counted again. One day, I'd love to do a series just on the Lipanes, if I can ever find a way to do them justice. But I haven't figured that out yet. This season is brought to you by the 11th Street River House in Bandera, Texas. Sort of. My wife and I have dreamed for years about owning a place in Bandera, and we finally bought a house there last year. Four blocks from the bars, three blocks from the Frontier Times Museum, with 120 feet of Medina River frontage and a collection of historic Texas maps on the wall, curated by yours truly. It's a great place to spend a weekend and to sort of indirectly support this podcast. Look it up under 11th Street River House on Airbnb or on VRBO. Editing for this episode was performed by Susana Canseco. Sound engineering by Stephen Bennett. Stephen Bennett also composed and performed the theme music. You can find more about Stephen at info at nosomedia, N-O-S-O media.com. David Moore designed the cover art for the season. You can find him at illustrationonline.com. For more information on our sources and other projects, please check out www.brandonseal.com.